Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Native Radio. This week on our panel, we have Tim Jung. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, Tim, I think we had you on, what, a week or two ago? Do you want to just remind people who you are, and then they'll get used to hearing you, and then we'll introduce our guest. Of course. Yeah, my name's Tim Jung. I'm a developer um, on the mobile engineering team for the Call of Duty Companion app over at uh, Activision Blizzard. Nice. Infinite Red has been designing and shipping and building web and mobile applications for 10 years. They're experts in React Native and passionate advocates for remote work. They also host North America's only React Native conference, Chain React, attended by hundreds of developers all over the world. I actually went this last year. It was a ton of fun. If you start a project after hearing about them on this podcast, they'll give you two free tickets. You can learn more at radio.infinite.red. And uh, our special guest this week is Hugh. Hugh, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, my name's Hugh. I'm the founder and studio lead at a uh, product shop in Manhattan's Chinatown. Uh, and, you know, we do everything from design, development, um, you know, user experience uh, and build things from, you know, experiential marketing sites all the way through to native apps, websites, and, and most recently, a mobile telephone, which I think we're going to talk about today. Nice. Yeah. The, the mobile telephone thing is just fascinating. In fact, do you want to just kind of give us the 10,000 foot view on what it is and what it has to do with React Native? Yeah, definitely. So um, we were approached uh, a couple of years ago about building the software stack for this minimalist uh, telephone. So it's a it's a cell phone that's about the, the size of your credit card, a little thicker. Um, and the core kind of concept of it is that it's it's minimalist. It has only the things that you need and none of the things that kind of like distract you and take your attention away. So it doesn't have uh, any any traditional apps. It doesn't have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It doesn't have a web browser. It doesn't have um, you know an email client or anything like that. It's it's designed to kind of be like a Swiss Army knife type of telephone. Um, and you know it's kind of capitalizing or, or, or going with the trends uh, of today's kind of getting away from the distractions of the internet and giving you a piece of hardware that kind of like forces you to to disconnect. Um, and uh, the way that it kind of um, interacts with React Native is that, you know, we, we chose React Native to kind of build the view layer for the operating systems um, kind of hardware, uh, software, firmware stack, which is kind of like a strange choice. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, some of those reasons why we chose that today. But um, high level, the entire view layer for this, this operating system uh, is built with React Native and is kind of running as a as a embedded platform app in a fork of Android um, and handling all the rendering that way. So yeah, that's awesome. It's it's really interesting just to look at this and go, wow, this like it reminds me a little bit of a Palm Pilot. I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings. <laughs> no, I mean a lot of the inspiration that that we had were from you know the the awesome nokia phones like the 3310 and 3315 um i remember i had one of those phones and you, you went in like i don't know 2006 or something and i you could take it and you could just skim it down the street <laughs> and then go and pick it up at the other end and it would still be working and you know that's kind of like the uh the the breed of cell phone that we were inspired by we wanted something that you know, you could just have on you at all times uh, and and do just the things you needed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I use it a lot. I go light very often and it's um, 
it's this amazing thing to do if you want to go camping or fishing on the weekend and you just really want to kind of disconnect and get away from all of the distraction and, mm-hmm. and loudness and noise of the internet. So, yeah. Yeah, I totally um, get the, the, the need or the, you know, the market this is filling. Um, a lot of the times today, smartphones, um, especially, you know, us as app developers, um, we're just constantly so distracted by our phones. Um, it's kind of refreshing to see something that focuses on, you know, the minimalism. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I don't know if anyone else does this, but I have recently started uh, putting my telephone, like my my iPhone, in the other room when I'm asleep. You know, so I'll, I'll go and I'll plug it in in my in my living room, and then I just have like an alarm clock in my bedroom, and just just making this small change has like made my sleep so much better and so much more kind of predictable and reliable. And what really has kind of like blown my mind is just how much of a presence the cell phone has your own cell phone has on your kind of like mental state. You kind of always know where it is. And it's kind of like this portal into this incredibly fast and loud world that, you know, is happening on your phone. And when it's near you, your brain is kind of like weirdly connected to it and following it, even when you're not looking at the screen. Um, So yeah, the whole philosophy behind this device is to give you a hardware way to kind of force and forcibly sever that connection. So, yeah, it it really works. You know, it's it's fantastic. So, um, yeah. it's super cool. Yeah. One one thing that I'm I'm kind of curious about getting into the technology a little bit is, um, you know, it's kind of this minimalist phone that uses e ink, which is what the Kindles use the uh, not the old school Kindles and stuff like that. I think the I think the current Kindles use it too, actually. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how how does that change your, the way that you use React Native? Because it seems like, you know, you still use kind of the component based, you know, approach to things and and stuff like that. But your components, you're not going to have color. You're not going to have, it it may not even get drawn the same way. So, yeah. It's a, it's a a big reason why we ended up using React Native was, was because of this screen. So for anyone who doesn't know how e-ink actually works, it's, um, it's really fascinating. It's, uh, it's a huge collection of physical kind of like bubbles. And in each one of these bubbles, there's um, all of these particles that are essentially like black and white. So, so if you would just imagine kind of like a sphere with these, with these particles floating in this liquid. And the e-ink screen has like a positive charge on the top and a negative charge on the bottom. And in order to change the color of the pixel, make it black or white or one of the 16 shades of gray kind of like uh, that, that it can handle, uh, you apply a certain amount of charge to the top or the bottom and pull those, pull those caps, those little tiny particles down or up, um, you know, further away from the user or closer to the user to, to get that color. So it's, it's deep down, it's like a very physical device, even though these, these particles are so, so tiny. Um, so what it means is that there is a lot of kind of a, a nuance to working with, with such like a, a finicky thing. Um, obviously, there's some great things about it. You know, you don't have the blue light shining in your face and mm-hmm. it doesn't keep you up at night. Uh, and, you know, it's just like a lot better for eye strain and things like that. But because we are physically moving these like actual particles up and down, uh, the refresh rate on the screen is is quite poor, right? Like even in like the most kind of tuned 
versions and implementations of an e-ink screen, you can really only get two to three screen changes a second compared to, you know, an LCD screen, which can do like 60 or more. Um, so what we needed was a way of kind of programming a modern reactive interface uh, that could, on a lower level, essentially kind of batch and, and intelligently fold a lot of the updates that were happening in this like reactive uh, interface and, and UI layer into single updates that were kind of like optimized and applied to the screen as soon as possible. So, you know, we looked at a lot of different ways of, of going about this and there really weren't a lot of kind of like declarative composable UI frameworks uh, for, uh, you know, for Java or Kotlin, which was surprising. I mean, there, there's a thing that's just come out called Jetpack Compose, but that wasn't out before we started work on the project. It, it was released after. And there's a thing called Litho, which probably would have worked for us. Um, but, you know, when we, when we looked at every, all things considered, we just decided React Native was, was the way to go. Um, and, and basically, kind of the way that it works, if I'm to give like a high level of, of how the React Native stack works with the, uh, the actual updating of the screen, there's a few layers, right? So there is the, the React Native layer. And what it essentially does is whenever something changes about any component that is wrapped in this higher order component we have, uh, it will decorate that component with kind of like this hidden field and give it all of the information it needs to pass through to Java and pass through, you know, to the, to the Android uh, compositor, uh, what type of e-ink update should be associated with this change. So essentially what we call that an e-ink heuristic. And then uh, when uh, changes happen in the view tree, we have a, a view tree observer in Java, which essentially watches for all changes to that view tree and then discovers these kind of uh, these special tags that we're rendering in, into React Native. Um, and it will kind of like analyze all of them, understand kind of like the screen area that has changed by measuring, you know, that kind of uh, that, that part of the view. And it will, it will kind of like put that into a render queue, uh, which we then kind of um, keep adding to over time. So, so, you know, there might be 10 or 15 renders that come through from React. And what we'll do is we'll essentially kind of batch all of those into a single change and apply that to the screen at one time. So, so essentially we're kind of like always observing what React is doing from the Java side and, and using that as kind of like a control signal to then pass things down to the kernel driver um, and, and apply those updates. So um, it was, it, the, the programming model has been, has been really fun. Um, you know, essentially when we have a dynamic component, we just wrap it in this like, this uh, render prop style component, which will, um, you know, observe changes and pass them through to Java. So yeah, that's that's how it works, and and it's been really successful. We've iterated on it uh, three or four times, and now it, it is performing pretty well. So yeah, it's really nice. So one thing that I think is really interesting about all of this is um, you're doing custom hardware, and you mentioned some things um, surrounding that that you're you know, communicating on an OS level. Um, and really what I'm just curious about is um, you have this really great article on medium.com, which talks about, you know, building light OS with React Native. And you really get into the guts of working with the Linux kernel. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit about some of the challenges you faced having to work with such uh, technical aspects of Android and custom hardware? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, some of the, and, and I want to be candid here and say that, um, you know, we worked with an OEM or an, an, an original equipment manufacturer in Taiwan. And um, we, we worked pretty heavily with uh, their engineering department to do some of this lower level work because that's their bread and butter. They essentially, um, when they are rolling out these, these devices, they will often write, you know, custom drivers to interface between peripherals and components. Um, so in terms of working with those kind of like lower level pieces and, and building forks of Android that are, you know, for very custom assemblies, the hardest thing, to be honest, is building Android, right? So if you're making changes and iterating and, 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 and building like a driver um, for the kernel, you have to be building against the full Android code base. Um, and there are techniques where you can make this a little bit easier and just build parts of the kernel and kind of replace that. But essentially what you're building is a, is a flat image. And a flat image is side loaded, like, sorry, loaded, bootloaded onto the device after every kind of like development cycle. So essentially you change some code and then you rebuild Android, um, which can take, if you're building the entire thing and you haven't got a particularly powerful machine, can take like an hour or more. And then you load that onto the, uh, the device and you test your, your software changes and you hope they work. <laughs> And obviously, this is why we have type systems and, and um, you know, all of this excellent tooling on that level, because there's just so much code that has to get built just so that you can kind of like test those changes that um, the hardest thing about it is, is, is iterating and, and, iterate and moving quickly. Uh, but, but as I said, there are things you can do where if you're focused on just one very specific part of, um, like, let's say the Linux kernel, you can just build that in isolation and have like an image that you built earlier and just swap out you know, one of the binaries um, and then kind of load that onto the device. So, so there's ways to speed up that development cycle, but it is compared to web development or, or native app development, it is just like horribly slow. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that's probably one of the biggest challenges outside of that. It's just understanding things like, um, you know, how to apply voltages to different pins on, on the device and, and kind of like conform to the spec of that hardware uh, peripheral. I mean, E-Ink doesn't really give you an SDK at all. Um, you kind of have to write these things, these, these custom drivers from scratch, uh, and they give you a spec of how to kind of interface with it. But, but this spec is very much like, you have to apply this voltage on this pin at this time in the device boot up sequence in order for the device to be prepared to receive these other signals. So, you know, it's, it's really quite complicated. And, yeah, to, to be fair, a, a lot of that work was done in Taiwan, and I, I oversaw a lot of the architecture, but, but I didn't write too much of that myself. Well, cool. it's super fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I'm wondering is, let's say that I have a, an app that I've written for iPhone and Android in React Native. How much work is it going to be for me to port it to uh, LightOS? Well, so <clears throat> the, the unfortunate answer to that question is that it's not possible. Um, because the, the LightOS, <laughs> I mean, that's, the, that's the thing I like, right? Is that, well, besides JavaScript and, you know, the component model and, you know, all of the things that I like about React Native, one of the big deals is that I can deploy anywhere. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so let, let's talk about that for a second. So the, the LightPhone, um, the, the team are, are very opinionated about what should and should not be on the phone, right? 
So the, the device itself is, is this philosophy that um, you should only be able to do this like subset of things that, that modern smartphones can do. So we have just rolled out what we're calling our tool store. And this is, the, this is very new. And the only tool that you can install right now is a calculator. And the tool store is essentially a subset of these apps that run using JavaScript. So another reason why we uh, chose React Native is because we wanted to create uh, kind of like a, a developer environment and an SDK that could be open to all JavaScript and React developers. And the way that we are going about that is, is by kind of building this like runtime and environment inside of our, uh, our LightOS React Native build. So the long story short is it, you cannot really build traditional React Native or just regular native apps for the LightOS, but we ha are rolling out an SDK. It's going to take some time, so don't hold your breath on this one. Um, but <laughs> essentially, all React Native and JavaScript developers will be able to build for the LightOS. Um, and you know, there will be kind of like a submission process where developers can submit their tool, and it will be kind of like decided on whether it's within the spirit of the Lightphone or not as to whether that will be accepted to our tool store. If it's not, it's always something that you yourself as a developer can kind of keep on your phone, but it won't necessarily be like uh, available to the general public. So, so yeah, essentially an SDK written in JS that is going to allow you to, uh, to write React Native, but within this um, kind of like sandbox that, that we're giving developers. I actually find this super interesting. Um, Charles raises a good point about React Native apps being usable anywhere. But I do at the same time think it's super cool that you're essentially building an environment where different developers could contribute what are essentially more simple apps. Um, today, you know, you go into the app store and apps are huge, they have a lot of ads, they're very complex. And this is kind of an opportunity to reimagine uh, building, you know, a whole new wave of apps which focus on simplicity and, um, you know, just really going to your Swiss Army knife philosophy of just the focusing on providing the most important parts of an app's functionality to, to the user. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I mean, just, just also to, to speak to why we kind of like took this approach, uh, like another reason, um, the, the e-ink screen itself is actually very difficult to work with as like a developer who's trying to make, you know, a reactive UI. Um, and, and we've built like a lot of utility into kind of like, our system that allows you to, um, you know, to have really fine grained control over how certain components update and things like that and how, how they affect the screen. Um, so if you were building for the light phone, regardless of kind of like how we allowed that to happen, you would still be needing to tap into kind of like these deeper SDKs and, and this like, you would essentially have to build for this device because the, uh, you know, the screen is so difficult to work with. Um, you couldn't just ship uh, uh, the, uh, an app that was designed for an LCD screen to this phone and have it work. And we tried, you know, like some of our early R&D phases, we would, we had like this different philosophy early on with how the screen would, would manage its updates. And essentially what we would do is we would, um, we had this lower level uh, observer that would watch the, the frame buffer um, in, in Linux and it would kind of like diff two different frames and it would kind of decide and try and understand what had changed on the screen and kind of just like do a natural update based on, you know, this algorithm. But, but what we found is like 
after like months of iteration on that, we still weren't satisfied with the performance or the user experience of, of how the screen was updating. It still made mistakes. It still wasn't perfect. And eventually we realized we just need to be decorating things from the UI level and controlling it from, from that, that developer level because this doing it on this really low level and trying to have this algorithm that, that just managed the screen updates uh, and allow the developer to do whatever they want just would never provide the best user experience. Um, so long story short, we st you still kind of have to build for this device alone if you want to ship an app to it. Um, so we decided to kind of like really own that ecosystem uh, instead. Yeah, I saw in this ecosystem too, um, you know, you're providing things like you have an eInk.js component. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit too? Yeah, so, so that component um, essentially just takes a render prop um, and, you know, the verdict's out on whether render props are, you know, the, the best way to do these things. You know, there's, there's some reasons why, why we chose it over, you know, higher order component. But essentially what it does is it takes, it takes this inner component and as that component changes and as its, as its prop boundary changes, uh, it will do a new render and it will take a few kind of a high level uh, props about the render itself. Um, you know, for example, what e-ink update mode to, to choose. There's, there's four e-ink update modes. Some are full screen, some like flash the screen. Um, and those flashes are necessary because often the, uh, the particles in the e-ink screen will kind of drift um, and, and lose their, their exact position. And that kind of creates this ghosting effect where you can kind of see a little bit of the past screen on the new screen. Um, so it's necessary over time to, to do certain flashes at certain life cycles of a component so that the screen can kind of like go back to a rich black rather than kind of like the, seeing this like little ghost of the screen that came before it. So choosing that update mode carefully for each component is, is very important. Um, and, you know, being able to decide whether a component should trigger a screen update when the component mounts versus when it updates or when it's about to unmount is also another very important uh, kind of like control level that you need when building components for this screen. Um, so, so that e-ink component essentially allows you to declare all of those properties of the, of the component underneath and, uh, and manage how it changes the screen from a physical perspective. Great. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's been through many rounds of iteration, but uh, it, it works pretty well at this point. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call to help me find a developer who can build it. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile developers that you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to g2i.co to learn more about what G2i has to offer. In my experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget. And the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to g2i.co to learn more about G2i. Yeah, this is really, really interesting. So um, one thing that I've seen working on Android apps is that you have the Android what is it, the management app, anyway, where you write Android apps and then you're able to test them out. Um, and so you can actually see what it's going to look like on your screen. Um, th does that workflow work with this particular device? 
Are you talking about the uh, the Android emulator? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, good question. Early days in in the build, yes, we were using the Android emulator. Um, but we got to a certain point where because we are we are building a ultimately like a, a kind of a kiosk mode app that interfaces with the very deep parts of, of Android. I mean, this is a cell phone, so it has to access like the very deep telemetry pieces. It has to access uh, things around doing uh, updates over the air. It, it basically needs full platform position, uh, uh, permissions in the same way that your settings app on your Android phone can basically touch every part of the phone. So in order to get those platform uh, permissions, you need to be signing your own application with the, the same keys that the Android build itself uh, uses as kind of like the, the highest level of permission keys. So, so what that means is when we build our uh, React Native app that, that runs against uh, the Light Phone, before we ship it to the phone, um, even in development, right? Like even if we just like change one JavaScript file and hot reload it, we are code signing um, all of that code with the platform keys uh, from, from the, the Android fork that we're using, those secret keys. Um, you know, they're highly sensitive and, and we've gone to great lengths to, to make sure that they're, you know, encrypted and hidden. Um, you know, we have like a lot of security protocol around, around these specific keys. And what that means is the app runs in this permission set that is, is much, you know, much more permissive than a regular Android app. Um, but it, unfortunately, you can't do that against the, well, it's very complicated to do that against the emulator. Uh, so at a certain point in our development process, we switched to building against the, the early development versions of the, of the device. And the very first one that we have is actually this large piece of cardboard about the size of a, you know, a textbook. And, you know, it just has all the PCB and the e-ink screen and everything kind of splayed out with just like wires connecting all of the pieces. And, you know, that's one of the very early development kits we were building against. But, you know, soon we got cases and soon we got things that look like phones. And, um, you know, we started developing against them mostly so that we could have that higher permission set against the real firmware that we'd be shipping to end users. So that was, that was really important to get right. So one thing that you mentioned, um, you know, is working with Android and um, focusing on that so much. But what I'm kind of curious about is, how often do you actually end up having to write any Java or native code to get all this working versus like what percentage um, is actually just React Native? Yeah, so I would say that um, probably 60% or more of the code that was written in, um, in, in this system is, is actually Java. We wrote a tremendous amount of Java. I haven't counted the, the lines of code, but it's in the, it's in the many thousands. Um, you know, somewhere probably between five and 15,000 lines of code. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is, is interfacing into the platform APIs, right? So when calls come in, for example, um, you know, we have all of these callbacks that are registered that fire things, uh, you know, in Java, which we then kind of like serialize into JavaScript objects and pass them back down to React Native. Um, and, you know, there's, there's just a ton of that. For example, the, the main screen of the device, it's, it's like the phone app um, or the phone tool. That phone tool, uh, it has this like interesting, I mean, it's kind of modern and we're kind of used to this now, but it's, uh, it essentially kind of like batches your call logs 
your MMS and SMS and, uh, you know, some other various things about uh, a specific content thread, uh, sorry, contact thread uh, into, into like one long kind of activity stream. And when you go into uh, the phone and you click into one of the numbers, it will show you all of these things. You know, it's similar to how iPhones do things, but, um, you know, in Android, like in the stock builds of Android, you'll have a messages app and then you'll have a phone app and your call logs live in the phone app and your messages live in the messages app. And, and we had to do like a tremendous amount of work actually to kind of like stitch all of this data together because in Android, these are, these are all SQL light tables and um, they're kind of like to separate and they don't talk too well. And there's also tons of quirks around, um, you know, if, if this is an international version of the same number that doesn't have the plus in, you know, the plus one in front of it, there's like a, a tremendous amount of work you have to do to kind of like compare numbers and, and do this in a performant way so that you can deliver this data back down to React Native. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, there's an enormous amount of Java and a little bit of Kotlin uh, running on the, on the phone. Um, and that was, yeah, I, I would say the majority of the code we, we wrote. Cool. So what's coming next? What are you working on now, Hugh? So coming next, yeah, at the moment, we are building a whole bunch of, of tools for the um, operating system. So uh, I, you, we have, we found that we have to be a little careful promising things because, um, you know, a lot, a lot comes up and, and we often have to reprioritize things on the fly. But what I can say is that right now we are actively working on a podcast app, um, you know, so we can listen to React Native uh, radio on the Lightline. Um, and uh, following that, we'll be doing a music player um, and, and a few other utilities that are kind of like necessary for modern smartphone users. Um, there, there will be a maps uh, component at some point where, you, you know, you'll be able to find directions from A to B in the most kind of simple way possible. We've tried uh, some basic tests for actually drawing a map onto the screen. And it's really such a tiny screen with such a, you know, kind of like finicky refresh rate that, that actually drawing maps is probably not going to be tenable, but, but we'll be doing kind of like MapQuest style lists of directions. Um, so, yeah, so right now we're really focused on uh, just building out this, this like kind of core tool set. Um, and then from there, there's a couple of things that we're, we're some interesting things that we're doing in terms of kind of a deeper telemetry pieces. Um, for example, uh, you know, a lot of these light phone users, and, and if you're familiar with the very first light phone, the kind of philosophy there was that you could kind of uh, use your light phone as kind of a mirror of your primary telephone. So if you got a call, um, you know, both of your devices would call, uh, would, would ring and you would pick up one of them and then the call would stop ringing on the other. Um, so we are looking into kind of like making those parts uh, a lot more mature and bringing them to the light phone too. So that, you know, if you're someone who still needs your iPhone for work, but you, you want to go light at all other times, that that's something that's very easy to do without having to just kind of swap SIM cards and things like that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, something that we haven't really discussed on this call cause it's not react native, um, specific is that our backend also can, uh, you know, provision SIM cards. So Lightphone actually is now offering its own telephone service. Uh, and, you know, you can request a light SIM, you can plug it into your phone, and then you can go to our website and, and activate that SIM card and be running on the, on the Lightphone uh, network, basically. Um, so we're kind of running this like mini telecom company 
uh, around this, tel uh, this telephone. And that gives us like the ability to, to kind of rethink how people want to interact with their SIM cards and their devices and, uh, and, and you know, and how people might, might want to kind of pair their devices and use them in, in different behavioral patterns. So, um, so those are the things that are coming next. Uh, and of course that, that SDK that I mentioned will, uh, will come, uh, sometime this year as well. Uh, I, I hope. Awesome. Is that, um, SDK, you mentioned that's going to be open source too, correct? Yeah. So, um, the, the like main components of it will be open source because ultimately we want anything that's built for the light phone to feel like it fits within the, um, the UI framework and the design patterns that we have, you know, it should, everything that's built for it should feel kind of like native to the device. So of course we'll be open sourcing, you know, all of those, those components so that folks who are building for it will be able to, you know, just kind of pull in those components and, and, and lay, lay out screens in the same way that we do in the, uh, you know, the first party pieces of the, uh, of the, of the phone. So yeah, we'll, we'll be open sourcing as much as we can, uh, around that. Sure. That's great. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to actually dig into the source code and uh, get a look at how it all works. So I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that and looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a part of me too that I just have so much noise on my phone that this just that there's a lot of appeal to me on a phone like this. At the same time, though, there are some things that I like doing on my phone that I don't know that you would ever enable on... <laughs> <laughs> But at the same time, I mean, it, a lot of them are a waste of time, like games and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I you can know. always, uh, you can always substitute those things with, uh, you know, talking to your loved ones and things like that. I mean, that's what the life and founders would say, you know, they'd say, well, you know, being more present in, in life is, is a better substitute, but I, I'm more with you actually, because, you know, I run a business and I definitely need to answer emails on my phone or so, you know, sometimes I have to log on to, to server, server clusters and make sure that this, you know, auto scaling properly. And I have to do that from my phone because I'm on the run. So I'm probably more in the camp of someone who would use their light phone as a secondary phone um, and just, uh, you know, route calls to it when I wanted to, um, which, uh, you know, is something that we are kind of like making sure to build out properly before we release the people, um, you know, prototype some of that and it works great, but uh, it needs a lot more, um, a lot more work uh, for sure. But yeah. Yeah. So what does the business end of this look like? Cause I mean, we're talking about the technology and things like that, but um, you know, how, how are you selling it? How are, how do you get the word out about it? Um, who's buying it? Yeah. So <clears throat> One thing that a lot of people bring up when I start talking about this, and, and it's a, you know, a relatively new idea to that, that individual, is that they say, well, it's a cool idea, but it's like kind of niche. You know, you can't really, you're not going to have a very big like community. And, and I've been thinking about that. And, and my point of view really is that the light phone is a device for everyone, but it's only for individuals in a specific time in their life, right? Like we've probably all felt to some degree as being, you know, extremely long logged on people that we are, this kind of like feeling of internet burnout, you know, like the feeling that you just need to get away from it. You need to separate from it. Everything's so noisy and you just want to relax and, and kind of like straighten your brain out. You know, like I know I've felt that at varying times in my uh, career. And, and my feeling is that everyone kind of goes through that from time to time. And there are a subset of those people who are going to actually start looking around for like what's a different way that I could 
I could be connected with like more constraint. So I actually think the, the customer base is, is actually pretty huge. It's, it's, it's a device for people at a specific time in their life to, to help them find respite. Um, but the Lightphone One uh, was originally founded on Kickstarter. And we, back then, that was, I think, like five or six years ago, that device was, was much more simple. It just had a dial pad. It didn't even have a, you know, a touch screen or anything like that. Uh, and it just had a, a basic LED um, uh, display across the top that, that just, just basically just showed numbers and letters. Um, and we built, we built a desktop app for that phone. And it raised a bunch of money on Kickstarter. I forget how much it was. Um, but the, the Light Phone 2 was on Indiegogo. I'm just going to quickly look up where it got to. Uh, because it really kind of blew our minds. Um, the Lightphone 2 on Indiegogo uh, did $3.513 million uh, in pre-sales. Um, and, you know, that's like, I don't have the numbers on me, but I would say that that's somewhere between seven and 10,000 phones that were purchased in pre-sale um, just based on the kind of, on the back of this idea alone, um, you know, this kind of philosophy uh, you know, and, and, and also the design presence, you know, it's, it's a really beautifully designed uh, device. Um, and, you know, now we sell the device on, you know, the lightphone.com. You can go over there and you can buy, buy the device. You can add a, a phone plan to it and we'll send you a SIM card and you can add a, a phone case and, you know, you can go and check out and that will give you a dashboard account, kind of like your iCloud account. Um, it'll give you an account that allows you to sync your, uh, your contacts um, to the device and, and to your dashboard. And, uh, and yeah, and you know, we've, we've been selling a bunch of them. I, I don't have a, a number for how many devices are out in the field right now, but based on the amount of, you know, our, our server is running 12 instances on a Kubernetes cluster of like, you know, an Elixir Phoenix app and, and we are just keeping up with all of the traffic. So, um, you know, it's, there's a lot going on. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it doesn't cease to surprise me how popular this idea is and how much it resonates with people. That's great. Building on the business side of this and kind of just exploring, you know, what's going on under the hood there. Um, how many developers are contributing to this uh, total? And maybe also specifically, how many developers are contributing to building the React Native code that's going into this? <laughs> I'm glad you asked because um, we like to say uh, internally at our studio that we are running a telecom company with uh, four developers <laughs> so there are there is me and, and i do a kind of like a lot of the lower level and development ops stuff so i run the server clusters and uh i do all the deployments and releases over the air for the for the os and things like that um we just have uh, you know and i will jump in and do os development and, and ui development when i'm needed but a lot of the time i don't do that type of work um we have one developer connor who is basically kind of like owning the um the UI, uh, and we, I also want to give a, a shout out to Alicia who, who wrote tons of this UI code and, and OS code as well. Uh, and then we have Conan and uh, Harrison who are basically kind of like building a lot of the backend API and dashboard pieces um, for that kind of like SIM card activation step and, and those kind of like deeper telecom pieces too. So yeah, there's just four of us right now and um, you know, we are hiring, so if you want to work on a telecom company and you're a you're a sharp, <laughs> you know, Java or React Native developer or Elixir developer, um, please reach out. 
Boy, we should get you on Elixir Mix. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've done some crazy things with Elixir too. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we are massive fans of that, of that language. Yeah, how much, uh, I'm a little curious now, you know, and I know this is a little bit off topic for React Native Radio, but um, so you have a back end. I'm assuming you have an app store and things like that, I guess, that are probably written in Elixir and, you know, some other technologies. But yeah, w- what are you actually building on the back end that users are going to need? Yeah, so, so the majority of the back end pieces, um, uh, or, or the API pieces are, are written in, in Elixir and Phoenix. Um, and that's just one big app, you know, it's one kind of like mono repo. Um, we do have a few microservices that are written in node and, and kind of just running on as like serverless functions, but, but the majority of, of our API is, is written in Elixir. Um, there are cases where we call out to like a card dev server for doing contact synchronization. Um, and those pieces are kind of just like out of the box Docker image containers that we have uh, just customized a bit to our liking. Um, but but yeah, as I said, the majority of things things are all running through this Elixir Phoenix app, and and that app runs uh, on uh, Kubernetes, uh, and is right now I think we're running about four Kubernetes nodes and twelve uh, twelve instances of this Elixir Phoenix app. Um, because we do have a WebSocket and real-time connections between the device and the server when we can, when we can manage it and when the device is on. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of like considerations that go into making sure that the battery isn't draining uh, too quickly, you know, through a WebSocket connection. Um, but, but, yeah, we also have, you know, a live connection to the server as well so that we can, you know, manage things. Like if someone changes a contact in the back end, you know, that contact will sync down to the phone as quickly as possible. Or if someone enables a tool in the dashboard, you know, that tool will pop up within, you know, microseconds on the device. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of what the backend looks like. And then the dashboard, we have like a proprietary admin dashboard, which, you know, only super users can see. And then we have, you know, the user facing dashboard and both of those are written in Ember.js. Um, you know, they're very kind of like CRUD heavy uh, apps and we just needed to kind of like ship them very quickly and, you know, I'm an Ember developer from way back and, and Ember felt like a really good solution for those things, especially because we're using like the JSON API spec to serialize all of the JSON for all of the parts of the system. And then the front end it, that actually sells the device and kind of markets the device is a uh, re- just a regular React.js app um, that interfaces with that same Elixir server. So, um, yeah, there's something like, I don't know, there's between like seven and 14 programming languages in this, in this system. I don't have an, have a account and it kind of depends on whether you're going to class HTML and CSS as, as some of those languages. I mean, I certainly do. Uh, but yeah, there's a whole, whole lot of stuff going on in that backend. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash jobbook. That's devchat.tv slash job book. This is super interesting. I guess what's cool to me is that you are such a small, tight-knit team, yet you have this incredible diversity 
of you know languages and technology you're using to you know build and ship this uh, product um, and it's really cool that I can tell you guys put a lot of thought into the kind of tools and languages that you're choosing to make this entire operation possible so it's really cool that you know react native has found a place and a good fit into this entire thing yeah, definitely. I mean, I, if I'm, as I said, like the two key reasons we chose React Native was to, to work with the screen in this logical and predictable way. And so that we could ship an SDK that allowed other developers to do the same. But a third reason why React Native was such a good choice is because going into this project, we, we as a team couldn't really write much Java. We weren't experts in Java. Um, you know, we could all write a little bit and we'd all kind of like messed around with Spring and things like that. But we, none of us were experts in Java at all. Um, and using React Native allowed us to kind of like take developers who are used to writing, you know, React Native apps or even just React JS apps and jump in and start shipping UI code in, in the very early days of the project. Um, and, and what that meant is, you know, the UI kind of came, came together with like a lot of stubs because, you know, we're using Redux and we're using um, you know, Redux Saga and, and, and handling everything through promises, you know, in this kind of like head, headless Redux context, context um, that calls out over the bridge. And we were able to kind of like just mock a lot of things with timeouts and kind of like build the shape that we want to be passing around, it, it, you know, in the React Native app. We're using Flow so that everything, you know, everything is, is strictly typed. And what it meant is I could jump in, I could start fleshing out some of that Java stuff while the UI was maturing very quickly before those developers were even ready to kind of like jump in and start learning some of the Java they needed to, to learn to build out, you know, the back end to their React Native components. So, um, yeah, I got to say it like helped us go from zero to 60 in terms of getting some UI on this phone uh, from day one. Yeah, that's such a recurring theme that when I talk to developers that comes up over and over again, it's just, you know, React Native is in a place right now where it's, it's so usable. Um, it really is performant. Um, but at the same time, it just allows you to do that zero to 60 um, and really get rolling on something. And it lets you draw on the existing JavaScript uh, community knowledge and all this too. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was awesome. I, I, I think we, uh, I don't know, kind of chose the, the right way about going about things, given that we are a small team and we are shipping software very quickly. Uh, you know, in a perfect world, you know, we might have written this all in, in native XML and, you know, using inflators and, and managing all of that, that UI imperatively. Um, but that we just didn't have the time. You know, building a cell phone is, is incredibly time consuming and we were already on a very short timeline. So um, it helped a ton. Yeah. I got to say. Cool. Well, I don't know if I have any other questions. Tim, do you have anything else you want to bring up? I do have one final question for you, Hugh. So looking back now, um, you know, your team has built something really interesting. You've had to solve a lot of challenges along the way. Um, certainly it was a long road. You know, if you could maybe go back in time with all the knowledge you have now, what things would you you know, what kind of advice would you give yourself, um, especially going down this rabbit hole with React Native as an operating system? <laughs> oh, I don't know if we've got enough time to go through all of the, <laughs> <laughs> the things we do differently. I mean, I, ultimately, I'm really happy with the software and, and how it turned out. You know, it's, it's incredibly stable. It performs really well. 
Um, There aren't many major things that I would change. But I would say that, and this this is like a little one, I would say that being even more diligent with um, with bug reporting, and uh, you know, we use Sentry for basically all of our bug reporting for all of our UIs, including the OS and and, and handling exceptions. And I would say that there's a couple of places where, as the you know, as we were rolling things out, there were a couple of places where we weren't capturing exceptions with as much detail as we would have liked. Um, we you know, because when you're running React Native, you're running this JavaScript instance, and then you're running also, you know, the, the Java instance, or, or you know, you're running the, the actual app on the, you know, in Android. And the exceptions can occur in both places. You know, you, you can have exceptions that occur in JavaScript, or you can have exceptions that occur in Java. And um, we found it a little difficult to kind of like unite and handle all of those exceptions uh, in a way that we could very easily find, debug, and fix those problems in the early days of rolling out the OS. We've gotten a lot better at this over time. But uh, yeah, just having like a more strict and diligent pattern for, for reporting exceptions is probably the, the main thing that, that I would have worked on um, so that we could fix things a lot quicker. Very cool. I think that's advice that you know, all of us React Native developers can relate to. Yeah, it's always kind of an afterthought, but then you know, with an operating system, so just so many things can go wrong especially just like dealing with telemetry um, general is like crazy. Like we, we had a, we, one thing we didn't preempt, which, you know, we just would have never found in our testing is that a, a small percentage of users would have MMSs that came in that were email addresses. You know, they weren't phone numbers, they were email addresses. So you'd be in a group text thread and one of the users would be, uh, would have an email address. <laughs> and that, in the early days of the light OS would brick the phone. You would have to basically get a new update shipped to the device to fix that. <laughs> and um, it took us way too long to figure out that it was an email address in the, in the recipient list that was causing that. So yeah, just little things like so much can go wrong when you're building like an operating system for a cell phone that you want to be, you want to be capturing those exceptions like, like crazy. Yeah. Oh, that takes me back. My first full-time development job, I worked for a company that did um, consulting. And so they farmed me out to a company that was putting together basically a a text message based system to connect people. Of course, this was like, what, 15 years ago? And um, yeah, it it was all kinds of wacky stuff that you get from the... um, cell exchanges and yeah a lot of people don't know it but yeah you can email within the u.s at least um and i don't remember all of the domain names but you could email like phone number at verizon text.net or something and so mm-hmm. it's when, when what he was talking about it's even transparent a lot of times to the user they, they don't know that it has an email address in there as the recipient. It, they think it's a phone number and then there's something in there that's translating it along the way so that it winds up in the right place. But yeah, down at the lower level, you have to be able to handle that because it's just one uh, artifact in the system that, that makes it work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a wild world. <laughs> yep. Telemetry is, is an old, very old technology and yeah. Um, it's just littered with all these these edge cases that um yeah 
we, you have we to just do weren't much, ready for. Do you have to do much carrier-specific programming? No, we haven't done any. Um, okay, that's there hasn't good. Been, there hasn't been any that, that I mean, on the lower level, there are, there are definitely cases where we need to handle different carriers and, and different bands uh, on kind of like the modem level, right? Like we have a Qualcomm chip and, and there have been cases where certain carriers don't work with certain other handsets in, in very specific cases. Um, and those things have to be shipped through like uh, basically an update to the, to the running firmware. So that's even, that's the lower, that's even lower level than, than Android itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so there has been a little bit of that, but, but on our level, like from that, from that Java side up, uh, no, we haven't had to touch any of that. Yeah. Well, 15 years ago, it was such a, p- a pain, pleasure to work in. <laughs> Pardon <sure>. my sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I share your pain. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I hear you. Um, well, if people want to learn more about um, LightOS, where do they find all that stuff? Well, so uh, first of all, you can go to thelightphone.com and you can actually buy a phone there and kind of just learn about the company and, and the philosophy and, and the hardware and everything you know, at that website. Um, but but my, my company is actually called Sanctuary Computer. You know, we're a software consultancy mm-hmm. here in New York and Lightphone is, is one of our biggest clients. Uh, and if you want to learn a little more about the technology behind the Lightphone, I would encourage people to go to our Medium um, which first you can go to sanctuary.computer. Um, that's our URL. And then you can find our medium from there. And there's a big article on there that, that kind of breaks down how to build a version of the light OS. You know, like if you followed, um, if you followed through with that medium post, you would probably have a pretty good understanding of how to do this at home on your own. And we've also got a bunch of other things on our medium that are actually quite interesting. You know, the way that we run our company is, is highly transparent. We uh, open source all of our profit and loss statements every year. Uh, we have an egalitarian profit share. We cover everyone's health insurance 100%. And there's, there's a bunch of writing about how we, you know, quote technology and, and, and run our consultancy in this kind of like, you know, transparent and, and open source type of way. So there's some other interesting stuff on our medium that I think your listeners would really like. Nice. Good deal. Yeah. All right, I'm going to ask you again, Tim, anything else we should bring up? Or Hugh, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to make sure we covered? Um, there's nothing, nothing major. Uh, I, think that, I think that we covered most of it, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, it's such, such a huge project. Like We could talk for days about some of the very specific things, but yeah, I, I really wanted to keep this focused on the OS itself. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm all set on my end. All right, well, let's do some picks then. Um, I'll go ahead and start us out with picks. So uh, I've been talking to a few people and uh, I guess I'm kind of toying with this because I've done it in the past. I hadn't done it for the last few years. Um, But a lot of people in light of the coronavirus and things like that have been asking for remote conferences. And it had kind of been building a little bit last year. But yeah, now that people are actually getting sick and getting worried about getting sick and, and just... I, I guess just to be a little bit uh, transparent, um, I hear some people that are super alarmed about it and other people who are talking about like, it's not going to be a big deal and it's being overblown and I don't know who to believe. So it's entirely possible that we'll have a remote conference and you know it won't be that, uh, that major a deal in the US. 
but it's also high, you know, I guess it's possible that it'll go the other way and it'll be nice to not have to shake people's hands and worry about that. So anyway, so I'm going to be putting together some of these conferences. One of them is going to be on React Native. Um, I'm trying to figure out when to do it so that it doesn't uh, collide with Chain React because I want people to be able to go to that conference as well and not feel like they have to pick. So um, if you are looking for a conference to go to, I highly recommend Chain React and I'm going to pick that. That's at the end of July. And then um, I'm going to be putting on a React Native remote conference. And uh, I don't have a domain for that yet. But if you go to devchat.tv um, slash conferences, you'll be able to find it on there. And uh, so I'm going to shout out about that. And then um, I've also been putting together a course on how to do podcasts. I've had a number of people ask me questions and I, I try and help them, but I, you know, I don't always have a ton of time. And so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give them enough information to take the next step. But um, I am putting together a course for that. So you go to um, courses.podcastplaybook.co, not .com, .co. Um, then you can actually pre-order the course. And by pre-order, what I mean is, is if it's after March the 9th, which it should be for this show, there will be some content in there. And I'm planning on just getting a couple of videos in every week until the course is done. So it'll walk you through how to get artwork done, how to set up your website, and on and on and on and on. It'll probably walk you through on the website stuff, setting it up in WordPress, and then how I have things set up on um, static site generator, like uh, Gatsby or uh, Gridsum or something like that. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll walk through a lot of that stuff and, and show you how to do it. Um, right now, it is $497 for a ticket or for uh, the course. Um, I plan on selling it at $997 and I'm reasonably certain that once it's done, I will easily sell plenty of them at that price. So if you want to get in early, yes, you're going to have to wait for some of the videos, but you'll get it for half the price. So anyway, um, I'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes. Uh, Tim, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have two picks today. Um, my first pick is... Recently, some gameplay videos came out for a video game called Half-Life Alex. Um, to anyone out there who is a fan of Half-Life 2 or Valve games, I'm super excited for this. Um, it comes out March 23rd and it is the first um, really high budget, like 15 hour long experience in virtual reality. Um, the gameplay trailers were super cool. You know, you have this the player moving around in environments. Um, at one point, they get into like a gunfight with these like alien soldiers uh, and they're like grabbing car doors to hide behind while like firing through the windows. It is awesome. You should definitely go watch the gameplay for it. Um, and if you're in a position where you have access to VR, you should totally play it when it comes out. I am super pumped for it. Um, my other pick uh, is a little bit more self promoting um, I have a blog on dev2, that's dev.to, uh, uh, if you just go to slash Tim Jung. Um, specifically, I wrote an article um, called My 2019 Year in Review, working on the Call of Duty Companion app. And really why I wrote this and um, why I think it's cool for people to read is it's, it's just a recap of kind of my portfolio of what I did on my team over the last year, what I contributed um, and the features I built. Um, so if you want to read it and talk to me about it, I answer pretty much all my Twitter DMs. Uh, I love answering questions for people who are curious about things I've worked on. So 
please feel free to do that. Nice. Hugh, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, yeah, I have a couple. Well, it's not really a pick, but I'll just give a quick plug again. As I said, we're hiring at Sanctuary Computer, www.sanctuary.computer. Uh, get in touch. We're super friendly. And, you know, we would love to chat. But, uh, but React two Native picks, developers or? Oh, yeah, we're looking others? for React Native. We're looking for React. We're looking for people who are just generally good at JavaScript, functional programmers, test-driven developer, developers, everything under the sun. You know, we, we really like uh, Rails and we really like Elixir Phoenix. Um, and, you know, we do a lot of JavaScript and, and modern kind of uh, stacks. So, nice. yeah, if that describes you, please get in touch. And, yeah, so my two picks. Uh, the first one is a uh, system called Lumen. Um, I'm not sure if this has been on uh, one of your podcasts before, James, but basically it's a uh, implementation of the Beam you know, or the Erlang VM as it's also known, um, but it's targeting WebAssembly. So the idea is that, uh, you know, you can write Erlang or Elixir uh, and compile it down to native code that can run in the web WebAssembly environment, uh, you know, and can kind of bind into all of the DOM APIs and allow you to essentially write really high performance user interface uh, using, you know, all of the resilience of, you know, a process supervision tree and, uh, you know, all of those kind of like functional paradigm uh, pieces that you get with, with Elixir. So um, that's something that I'm incredibly excited about. Uh, it's, it's early days yet, and it's being developed um, by some folks from Dockyard uh, in Boston. Um, and, you know, they've been leaders in the Elixir and Phoenix space. Uh, so I'm sure they're going to do an incredible job of this. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, and then my second pick is uh, Project Ren. So Project Ren is a, a service that allows you to offset your own personal carbon footprint uh, by paying monthly subscriptions um, based on kind of like a calculation that you, that you put in. So, uh, you know, you go through and you, talk, you, you put in how much meat, meat you eat, how much you travel to and from work, how many flights you take, uh, long haul and short haul, um, things like that. You, you essentially develop an average carbon footprint for your own you know personal existence and then you know it allows you to pick uh you know some type of carbon offset you might want to buy for example um you know my carbon offer uh, my carbon footprint costs me something like nine dollars and 53 cents a month and that money goes to planting trees in africa so i think it's a really cool uh project and you know it just helps me feel a little bit better about my day-to-day -day life so yeah it's cool all right and uh, did we get social media links and stuff for you? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, oh, you know, on, on the doc that I sent over, but I'm uh, at underscore HHFF on Twitter. Uh, and our company, Sanctuary Computer, on Twitter is at SanctuCompu, you know, so SanctuCompu. And that's the same uh, on Instagram as well. Um, so, nice. Yeah. That's it. All right. Well, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Yeah, I've been listening to the podcast for ages, so it's it's really uh great to be on. Good deal. All right. Well we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will be back in a week. Max out everybody. Later guys. See ya everyone. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.